Good morning. It's so good to see you. I, I know I haven't met many of you. My name is Cameron, and I know we have a lot of new faces here. Let me say I am new as well. Uh, there's a lot of newness that's been happening in my life. I got married eight months ago, and we came back from the honeymoon, loaded up a U-Haul two weeks later, and moved everything to Omaha. So we haven't been here that long, uh, but we're so thankful God led us here. Uh, my wife's name is Brittany. She's in the back serving children, so I hope you would get a chance to meet her as well. As you can tell, I speak fluent redneck. I am from Tennessee. Uh, spent the last 10 years in Kentucky, so if you have a hard time understanding a southern ac- accent, uh, go ahead and pray for the gift of interpretation this morning. They also make Rosetta Stone for southern English, in case you didn't know that, so I'll pray that God helps you understand. So, uh, one thing that we're big about at City Light is that we don't take ourselves very seriously because God has freed us to be weak in His perfections. But we do take God very seriously and His Word very seriously. So if you've got your Bibles, flip over to Colossians 1, 1 through 8, if you haven't already done so. Colossians 1, 1 through 8. And so today, I officially kick off our brand new sermon series in Colossians with a message I'm calling Meet the Colossians. Meet the Colossians. So we'll spend about half the time introducing the book and then the other half teaching through just the first eight verses. And so as I was prepping this week, my mind did go back to my home folk and I uh, thought back on the wildfire outbreak of 2016, maybe you saw it in the news. On November 28th of that year, uh, citizens of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, they woke up in the midst of a nightmare a small a spark had morphed into a massive flame, and it became the worst fire in the Smoky Mountains in more than 100 years. And when the fires finally fizzled out, uh, more than 16,000 acres had been burned, uh, 14 people lost their lives, and over 14,000 people had to be evacuated. And included in that number were my mom and my little sister, Uh, My mom sent me this picture on her cell phone. Uh, She actually took that. There's this wall of flames headed straight for her, and by God's grace, he diverted the flames, they got out of there, and their home was spared. You know, the major contributing factor in this wildfire outbreak was a severe drought that struck the area. It was the worst drought that the southeast had seen in 10 years. Wells went dry. Farmers suffered. Gardens died. And all the forests were so parched that it made for easy kindling for the flames. Now, as you might can imagine, uh, the Southerners shared a common desperate plea. And that plea was that God would send rain. That he would send water, the one natural force, with more authority than fire. And so what they needed in that area for vitality, for life, and to calm the chaos that the flames had created was water, nothing more, nothing less. And thankfully, just one night after the wildfire outbreak, God sent over an inch of rain to Gatlinburg. And then the next night, another inch came, and then gradually more rain came. And the flames were overwhelmed, and everything was brought back under control. And over time, that water seeped into the soil, and it spread, and it ushered in brand new life for that area. And so, City Light, I believe those flames that came and were quenched really serve as a picture of Paul's main point to this young Colossian church. 
So Paul's main point for writing this little congregation is to help them to see that what's needed for spiritual vitality, for brand new inner life, what's needed to calm the chaos in our hearts that sin creates is Christ alone and nothing else. He alone is sufficient to save us and to satisfy us. We, we should be in as desperate of need for Jesus as the Tennessee folks were for water. And the reason for that is Christ alone has the authority to drive out the lesser gods in our lives. False gods like money and sex and power, gods that make really great promises but never deliver. And we know they only leave us dead and dry on the inside. Christ alone has the power to save us and to quench the chaos in our hearts that sin creates. And again, Jesus alone has the ability to satisfy our souls as he pours his new life into us. I love the imagery we get in John 4, 14. Uh, That text says that Jesus lives in us as a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus quenches our spiritual thirst by adequately supplying all of our spiritual needs. So again, we need to get this. We're about to dive into Colossians all the way until summertime. So Paul holds forth the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Then he demonstrates that his loving rule should seep into every single area of our lives. And just like that water that seeped in dry mountain soil and eventually brought in new life for the area, when the Word of God comes in, when Jesus comes in, when the Holy Spirit moves through our lives, it brings transformation to every single area that it touches. And we'll see in Colossians that our suffering, our morality, our sexuality, even the very relationships under our roofs, uh, that's how we say it in the southeast, the roofs, Uh, our husband and wife relationships, our children, even the way we approach our employment, all of that must be re-examined and reshaped in light of the gospel. So again, Paul holds forth Jesus as central. He alone saves us and he alone sustains us and gives us new spiritual life. And he holds forth Christ in such a preeminent way because there were people within the Colossian church saying otherwise. And I'd submit to you that there are people in our very city, in our modern context, that would say otherwise as well. And so what prompted Paul to pen this letter was a troubling report that came to him from Epaphras. As we'll find out, Epaphras was the founder of this congregation, and he brought news that a false teaching was threatening this young church. And Paul doesn't say specifically what this teaching is, but we can glean that it was probably some sort of syncretized Christianity. Uh, They were attempting to fuse together Christianity, pagan mysticism, and even Judaism. And its teaching featured the need for weird experiences with angels and intense religious rule-keeping. The Colossians were uh, encouraged to actually pray to angels to seek their help from evil spirits. And they were called on to complete their salvation uh, by maintaining an allegiance to the ceremonial law, laws such as kosher eating, and even by continuing to practice circumcision. Now, you have to imagine that when this letter was read aloud, and when they heard this teaching from Paul correcting that false teaching, 
There are probably several guys limping around with a bag of peas saying, oh, Paul, I wish we'd heard this two weeks ago, but praise God, at least my kids don't have to go through that now. And then secondly, there are probably some others saying, round up the swine, fire that smoker back up for the potluck on Wednesday. It's okay to laugh at City Light Church. Now, you might be tempted to say, um, well, who would buy in to that kind of false teaching? But I promise you, listen, look around, people in our culture, our city, and maybe even our very church, we buy in. And we buy in any time we attempt to supplement the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Uh, We buy in when we look to something beyond the person and the work of Christ to save us. And, And we buy in when we look beyond Christ, His Word, and the Holy Spirit to sustain us and to grow us in our faith. And and so what are we tempted to look to in our culture? Well, some people take the path of what I call hyper-spirituality. You know, I don't meet nearly as many atheists as I do hyper-spiritual people in this city and in really any city I've been in. And I define this as an attempt to compound as many spiritual pursuits as possible in order to make sure your soul is covered. It's kind of like a spiritual Geico umbrella insurance policy. Give me a little bit of everything so I can make sure I'm covered in the end. And it works out like this. Uh, Yes, you like Jesus and the church, but you also dabble in Eastern religions and transcendental meditation to maybe try to increase your peace. And yes, you might pray to God before you go to bed at night, but you do it beneath this large Native American dream catcher that hangs behind your bed and it supposedly filters the evil spirits and the bad dreams. I don't know if that's a thing here, but down south we've got this weird deal. We love dream catchers and it just doesn't mesh with Christianity. Or you could be that you esteem the Bible, but what really gets you going are accounts of mystical experiences like books like 90 Minutes in Heaven and 23 Minutes in Hell. Have you ever read those? That second one was really just one man's testimony of watching a Hallmark movie with his wife and (laughs) making it through as far as he could. That was actually my autobiography I wrote uh, this past Christmas season. My wife is in the nursery, so I can say things like that. (laughs) You know, others continue to try to take the path of legalism. And that is, if you're moral enough, if you're good enough, if you follow the rules closely enough, then maybe God will have to accept you. And listen, I haven't been here long, but as I've listened, as I've had conversations with unbelievers, this is the predominant worldview in Omaha for a person who does not know the gospel. If you ask around enough this question, what do you think it takes to get you to heaven, Uh, more than likely you'll hear a response like this, well, if I'm a good enough person, then that maybe will get me there. so, So some people crave mystical experiences to enrich their Christianity. But Paul is going to say to us that the only spiritual experience we need to mature in the faith is a richer experience of Jesus. And others try to complete a list of rules to contribute to or to accomplish their salvation. But we need to understand that Jesus has already accomplished our salvation for us on the cross, and we can't add anything to it. See, religion says that we obey God out of a dutiful way to try to get him to love us and to accept us. But praise be to God, the gospel says we obey God delightfully because he's already accepted the sacrifice of his son Jesus on our behalf. 
So again, I'm being repetitive on purpose. Paul makes it clear in Colossians that Jesus alone is able to save us and he is sufficient to sustain our faith in him. And so before Paul dives into his lofty Christology, uh, this letter begins really simply. In verses 1 through 8, he takes time to encourage the faithfulness of the Colossians. And as he does so, he also gives us some insight into how this church began. And his encouragement takes the form of a prayer report. Uh, He reveals that he frequently prays for and expresses gratitude to God for this little church. And so following Paul's example, here's number one, if you've got your notes, we too should thank God for the church. Express gratitude to God for the local church. Now, notice again verses 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So verse 1 makes it clear that Paul is the author of this letter. And he writes on behalf of his young protege in the ministry, Timothy. And there's a good chance that Timothy also served as his secretary during this project because, keep in mind, he writes to the Colossians during his Roman imprisonment. Now let that sink in just for a moment. This is so different than the way that we respond, isn't it, when we face pressure. Paul is facing immense personal difficulty, but get it, His more pressing concern, what he's most worried about, is the difficulty this young church is facing. He's not concerned about his chains. He's more concerned that he could be an encouragement to this congregation in this moment. And he does so by letting them know he's praying for them. And this great apostle, the missionary, he's grateful for them. Imagine what it would have done to this little congregation, how it would have made them feel when they heard these words from Paul. Now, I ask this question when I read this. How is Paul able to do this? How does he maintain his sense of gratitude for all God's accomplished in and through this little church despite his incarceration? Well, it's because Paul had never quite gotten over the radical difference the gospel had made in his own life. Though he's chained physically, He continually rejoices that his heart has been set free in Jesus Christ. That's how he's able to maintain gratitude, because he's been set free in Jesus. And then Paul also had a profound love for the church at large. You know, God had used the church to alter the trajectory of his life. You know, despite his murderous past, despite that he had made many individuals martyrs, this church, after his conversion... They welcomed him in as a brother. And when the time was right, the church at Antioch, they sent him out on mission. And then various churches continued their support of Paul during his difficulties and during his imprisonments. And so Paul has an incredibly high, a lofty view of church because of the personal impact it had made in his life. But because it had also been making a global impact as churches were taking the gospel out. So therefore, he's doing all he can, even in chains, to be a champion for this little budding congregation in Colossae. 
So this morning, I want to ask you a question. And I want you to answer it honestly in your heart. Do you feel the way that Paul feels about the church? Um, As you pray, do you routinely express gratitude for the way the church has impacted you and for the way that the church is impacting the world? Um, What's your experience of church been like? You know, unfortunately, many people don't have gratitude for the church because they've never experienced the church as God intended for it to be experienced. You You won't be passionate about something you've not experienced personally. And others have been impacted, but you've been impacted negatively. You know, maybe that's your story this morning. Uh, as opposed to the church moving you closer to Jesus, it's moved you away from Jesus. And now your heart's closed off to God. And your heart's closed off to the congregation. If that's you this morning, let me say as a pastor, I'm really sorry that you've been hurt by a church. I'm sincerely sorry if you've been a victim of ministry malpractice. Uh, But along with that, I also want to encourage you to open up your heart once more uh, to the local church. And I want to specifically ask you if you'd be willing to give City Light a chance this morning. Uh, No, I won't. I, I can promise you, you will not find a perfect church here. I mean, we're filled with incredibly flawed people, including all the pastors My wife can tell you that, but what I can guarantee you is you'll find a body of believers here doing everything in our power as we're fueled by the Holy Spirit to point you to the only perfect person to ever live, namely the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. And you will find pastors and leaders here who are committed to doing all we can to guiding the church to be all that the Bible says we should be. And as Paul gets into the particulars of why he thanks God for the church, in verses 4 and 5, he actually gives a picture, a a little window into what a church should be like. So see if this compares with your past experience of church. We see three things here that should characterize city light and really any healthy church for that matter. The first thing is faith in the Savior. Faith in the Savior. Verse 4a says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. You know, as you'll often hear us say around here, and we're going to say it and say it and say it, the church is not a building. We love this building. I see many of you looking at it as I preach to you this morning, but the church is not the building. This is simply a shell where God's people gather. Church is people. And we become God's covenant people when we place our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, our sin separates us from a relationship with God, but out of His great love for us, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us and to usher us back in. Christ came and He lived a perfect life in your place, in my place. And He died a death on the cross, paying the penalty for sins in your place, in my place, the penalty that we all deserve. And when we place our faith in Him, He removes our sins and He imputes into us the righteousness of Christ. And then we get reconnected to God through His righteousness. And so therefore, a foundational feature of any church should be a people filled with gratitude for the renewed relationship that the gospel has wrought in our hearts, the renewed relationship with God 
that we get to enjoy because of Jesus. You know, in a healthy church, you should expect to hear stories of and to see instances of people being radically transformed by the gospel as they put their faith in Jesus. You know, this morning I think of my dear friend Mike, a man who sits just right there. Uh, he's become one of my most precious friends at City Light. And a summary of his story is, is that as a younger man, he made some bad choices. Uh, he eventually got addicted to meth, and he wound up in prison for a period of time. But thanks be to God that the gospel even broke through that jail cell. And, and while he was there, he turned from his sins and trusted in Christ and became a brand new creation. And I love the way Mike says it, that he was happier as a saved man in jail than he ever was as a man enslaved to sin on the streets. He went from being addicted to meth to being addicted to the grace of God and the Word of God. And now he's out of jail with us this morning, with his family, right mind, heart for Jesus. He's in my city, city group being discipled. And listen to this, y'all. In a few weeks, we'll even be serving communion here in this very building. So thanks be to God for gospel transformation. A brother that potentially cooked meth to now serve in communion to Christ's bride, the church. You see, the church should be characterized by real people who've experienced real change because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing that Paul is thankful for that we should expect to see in a local congregation is love for the saints. Love for the saints. And we see this in the second half of verse 4. And of the love you have for all the saints. And so understand that our faith is never meant to be fleshed out in isolation. Um, faith in Christ always works out into deep love for one another. And the reason for that is when we get saved, not only do we gain a Savior, but we gain a brand new spiritual family. And God knits the hearts of this family together in love. And the love that we have for one another, it transcends generational, cultural, ethnic, and socioeconomic boundaries. Think about the fact that Paul, a once devout Jew, is calling Gentiles in, in Colossae, many of whom he had never met, brothers. It just shows you the way that the gospel forges an unlikely family. And this love that we have for one another, understand it is a powerful witness to a watching world. You know, Jesus himself said in John 13, 35, by this... All people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So why is this the case? Well, when people from the outside look in and they see a, a colorful conglomerate of people worshiping together in unity, sacrificing for one another, not infighting, serving one another, well, the only explanation is something supernatural is happening because that doesn't happen in its own power. You see, the church is actually the gospel made visible. The fact that God reconciles us to himself, but through the gospel, he also reconciles us to one another. So when God's people gather, it should point people to the gospel because the gospel alone forges a loving and a very unlikely spiritual family. And then the third thing that Paul makes note of regarding the Colossian church that should characterize any healthy church is their hope of salvation. Their hope of salvation. We see this in verse 5. Uh, because of the hope 
laid up for you in heaven. And so the Colossians' faith in Christ and their love for one another, uh, all that's grounded in their hope of eternal life. Uh, Paul has in mind the glorious future reality that Jesus is preparing for all of his followers. You know, the present reality is pain and pressure, false teaching, as we'll see in this letter. In our experience on this sin-cursed earth, we'll be colored by suffering as well. And so Jesus calls us to lock arms with one another and to stain one another through times of suffering, sickness, and loss. Now, the image I get in my mind is that of a wounded runner trying to finish a marathon and his running friends come along and throw his arms around their shoulders and help him get across that finish line. And not only do we sustain each other together, we eagerly long for the day when Christ returns and recreates the earth and does away with every trace of pain and suffering. You know, City Light, I can't tell you how many times I have been tempted to give up on Jesus during difficult days, but the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, have intervened time and time again and have lifted my head up and have encouraged me to maintain my hope in Him. You have done this so well for Brittany and I, even lately, through the Christmas of hell, as I called it. Refer back to another message. Uh, You've been so kind to reach out and to encourage us and to affirm that God indeed called us here. So we're grateful for you. You help me keep going when I want to quit. And so along with Paul, my heart is also just bubbling over with gratitude for the local church, for you, for the faces I see here around me. You know, maybe you're here today and you're curious about Jesus, but yet you don't have people to help you flesh your faith out. You've got questions about your faith. Or maybe you're here and you've been a part of a really dysfunctional family to this point, and you long for halfway healthy relationships, and you want to experience real relational love. Or maybe you're here and to this point you haven't needed anybody. You've been fiercely independent, but suddenly the storms of life have been tossing you to and fro, and you're in desperate need of somebody to lean on. If that's you, if that describes you, let me submit to you, that a help to those scenarios I just mentioned is the local church. A healthy local church can help. And as I said earlier, we won't love you perfectly, but I promise you, you can take it to the bank. We'll do everything in our power to point you to the perfection of Jesus. And we'll also do everything we can. We won't do it perfectly, but as a faith family to pursue you as a brother and sister in Christ. So this morning, why don't you go ahead And take the leap, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus as your Savior. And while you're at it, why don't you go ahead and jump in and join up with this unlikely band of misfits known as City Light Church. Praise God, you Midwesterners even welcome rednecks in from the South. Even more colorful now. And so Paul begins by encouraging the members of the church. And then he turns his attention for a moment to the gospel message that forged the church... And the gospel messenger that delivered the gospel message to Colossians, to the Colossians. And so as he expresses gratitude for Epaphras, the second big point is we too should thank God for church planters. So number two, thanks be to God for church planters. So in verses 5b through 8, Paul gives a little history lesson as to how this church came to be. And it blossomed into existence as a result of church planting. 
Now that phrase sounds cool, church planting, and maybe it sounds complicated, but here's all it means. According to church planting guru J.D. Payne, uh, he says this, church planting is simply evangelism that results in new churches. Or to communicate it in other terms, disciple-making that results in new churches. <clears throat> so when we, when we boil it down, church planting happens when the gospel message is taken by a gospel messenger to a particular location. And a church forges, it forms when God blesses that work with spiritual fruit and people come to receive Jesus as their Savior. And that's exactly what happened in Colossae. Um, Notice again verses 5b through 6. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel. Here's the key. Which has come to you. As indeed is in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing. uh, As it also does among you. um, Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul reminds the Colossians that they had heard the true word of the gospel. And the gospel simply means the good news that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, This word of truth, their profession of faith, had changed their lives. And it had proved to be a reliable word, a reliable message upon which they could build their lives. And Paul means for them to contrast this with the faulty foundation, the shaky foundation of the false teaching. That was not a reliable foundation for them to build their lives upon. And so it's the gospel alone that has borne fruit in Colossae. And from Paul's perspective, even in prison, it's bearing fruit in the entire world. And so church planting happens when the reliable and the revolutionary message of the gospel takes a location by storm. But how does the gospel get there? Well, that's where gospel messengers come in. And the messenger to the Colossians was Epaphras. Notice again verses 7 and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now here's the quick Cliff Notes version of how the church in Colossae began. During Paul's third missionary journey, he spent three years ministering in the city of Ephesus. And a young man from Colossae named Epaphras, he travels the 120 miles west to Ephesus. And he hears the gospel. And apparently he gets converted. His life is transformed. So he leaves as a transformed man, travels the 120 miles back to his home city, Colossae, and he allows God to use him as an instrument of transformation in his home city. And as he shares the gospel, people in Colossae get converted. And lo and behold, you have a church developing there because of his ministry. And so churches are planted when people like us that have been changed by the gospel, when we turn around and carry that gospel message back to people we care about, then churches form when God breathes on the work and blesses all that with spiritual fruit, when people respond in faith. And so based on this, I want to close by encouraging us to do two things this morning. Number one, I want us to look back with gratitude And then look forward with great anticipation. And so first of all, understand church, we need to be grateful that out of sheer grace and because of God's sovereignty, 
that the gospel got to us. I mean, understand that if you have trusted Jesus, you're a living and breathing miracle. Because there are millions and even billions, yes, with a S, people around the world that have never heard this saving message. You know that right now in Pakistan, there is only one Christian worker for every one million people in that country. And secondly, we should also be grateful for the faithful men and women who came before us and leveraged their lives for gospel multiplication. Y'all have in mind the early settlers, the missionaries, the pastors that carried the gospel throughout America and even on to the Midwest. And also have in mind personal people, um, your pastors, your church planters, your friends, your teachers, your coaches who invested the gospel in your life. You know, for me, my mind immediately goes to this man. His name is James Atkins, dear saint of God. As a 10-year-old who wandered into a little mountain church during a vacation Bible school commencement, I was converted under his preaching. And then after that, I rebelled during my teenage years, as so many of us do, but then he welcomed me back in, and he helped me find my way back to Christ, and he also helped me articulate a calling to ministry. And then he sent me on to seminary for training. You know, just this past summer, I had the chance to go back to that little hometown, to that little church, and to find this man who was still preaching, and just to express gratitude for him, for being faithful to pour the gospel into me. And we hugged and cried and just celebrated God's goodness together. And then not two months later, this man passed away of unexpected heart failure. You know, little did I know that would be the last time I saw him before he went on to heaven and waited for me until I get there. And so City Light is a really practical response to this message today. Can we just express gratitude that the gospel got to us? That out of his sheer grace, his sovereignty, he orchestrated means to get the gospel to us. A little kid in Tennessee, people in the Midwest, we should praise God that the gospel came to us. And secondly, if there are gospel messengers still living, if your gospel mentors, the people who poured the, the gospel message into you, would you take some time this week and reach out and just thank them for their faithfulness? So we look back in gratitude. But we also look forward with great anticipation. You know, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, uh, we celebrated the story of City Light. You know, we're a relatively young church, only five years old. But God has done immeasurably more than we could ask or think in, in these last five years. You know, just five years ago, pastors Chris and Gavin and a faithful core, they launched out and they pioneered a fresh gospel work here in Omaha. And literally hundreds of people have crossed over from death to life as a result of this church, as a result of their church planting efforts. And hundreds more have had their faith rekindled in Jesus and are now celebrating all that Christ has done, a, a fresh work of revival in their hearts. And this movement has also multiplied exponentially. We planted four other churches in that time frame. And while we are so grateful for all that God has accomplished in us and, and through us, a lot of us share this corporate conviction that God is not finished writing this story. And here's the reason he's not finished. There are still scores of people in this city and beyond that aren't yet acquainted with the life-changing story of Jesus Christ. 
There are individuals unlike us and unlike the Colossian church that don't have hope in him, that have never experienced a loving spiritual family, and that don't have the hope of eternal life. So City Light, let's commit to keep doing all we can to paying it forward and investing the gospel into the lives of other people. And let's especially stay committed to church planting. For the church is God's ordained means to get the gospel to the world. Let's continually be asking this question. Where else does the gospel message need to go? Go ahead and get a place in mind, a city, a people in mind. Yes, it has borne fruit in Omaha, in Lincoln, in Council Bluffs. But what about the smaller places like Fremont and Waverly? Who's going to go there? And what about the larger places like Denver and Chicago and Kansas City and even Charlotte? We need the gospel down south too in the midst of all of our dream catchers. Who's going to go there? And so what place and what people do you have a gospel burden for? And as a response to this message, what are you going to do about it? You know, City Light, we're riding a wave of God's grace. Let's all commit together to be open to riding this wave as far as God wants to take it. Let's stand and pray together. Oh, Father, uh, my heart is filled with gratitude for the gospel. And God, I'm so thankful for this gospel, people. God, I'm grateful that though my wife and I, we left our family, our friends, even the church I was pastoring, that, oh God, we had a spiritual family waiting for us here. Oh God, just thank you that they welcomed us in, that they've loved on us, and that they give me the privilege of preaching on, on a Sunday. God, thank you for that. And God, my prayer is that you would fill our hearts with gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. Oh God, if, we're, if we've got callous hearts toward the gospel and toward the church, may you break in right now with your Holy Spirit. Do a fresh work in us. And then, God, may we leave to your changed people, carrying the gospel to people we care about. Do all this in Christ's great name. Amen.